This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear FaceTime by Laurie Moore, which was published in The New Yorker in September of 2020. Who could feel how large a transformation was really occurring when the Earth seemed to be enjoying itself more than ever? And who could speak of such things to a man who was clutching his plastic necklace of oxygen? The story was chosen by David Means, who's the author of a novel and six story collections, including Instructions for a Funeral and Two Nurses Smoking, which came out in 2022. Hi, David. Hey, Deborah. So let's talk about uh, Laurie Moore's writing in general first. Um, have you been a lifelong fan? I I have. I, I really have. I think Laurie Moore is a national treasure, um, the kind of treasure that you sort of take for granted because she's consistently around and always writing these amazing stories that, that almost look easy, but they're not easy. What do you think is the most sort of salient characteristic of her writing? Well, besides her humor, I'd say that she's really radically innovative and uh, does new things every time, even though it doesn't seem like it um, in some ways. And there's an edge to her work, a sharpness mm-hmm. um, that's sort of a, a trademark that's in there. It, it, it's a combination of everything that, yeah. that's involved in the story, the structure, the way her stories are built, combined with her wit and her really amazing poetic eye. She has this way of seeing. Um, I don't know if that answered the question exactly. But <laughs> <laughs> she has a lot going for her, let's put it that way. <laughs> she does. Um, this story, FaceTime, is set during the early months of the pandemic. Um, and it was very topical when it came out, basically six months after the pandemic started. What, what made you want to discuss it from this kind of vantage point of just three years later? I I think two things. One is that when it came out, it was like bringing, you know, that Ezra Pound quote, that art is the news that stays news. Mm -hmm. And when it came out, I was like, it was kind of news. And then it was also something deeper. So it was bringing the news to me sitting in my house in quarantine or whatever. And then when I reread it recently, it put me through this unique uh, thing of re-triggering my trauma in some way, but also the art part of it transcends that. Mm-hmm. It's an utterly unique story in a lot of ways because it feels like autofiction. It feels like confessional, but um, I kind of refuse to see it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should just hear it and then we can talk more about that. <laughs> sure. Um, We'll talk some more after the story. And now here's David Means reading FaceTime by Laurie Moore. FaceTime. I asked my father if he knew where he was, and he said, kind of. You are in the hospital. Your hip surgery went well. But there is a virus, and you have been found to have it. You are contagious. No one could get near. It's happening all over the world. You caught it in your assisted living facility. The chef had it. His blue eyes had a light that appeared to race from the back of his brain to the front. The brightness of them seemed to direct itself with sudden power into the screen, then straight through me and past me. The Berrywood chef? Yes. Now his eyes dulled again. The food was not good. I did have a glass of lemonade once that was delicious. Like in the war. Cold lemonade in a jam jar. He licked his lips. There was a crust in the corner of his mouth, and he picked at it with one of his long, now thin, pianist fingers. The oxygen tubing dangled on his chest. Is there something you need now? After we finish FaceTiming, I can phone the nurse's desk. I'd like some of that lemonade. I'll ask them about that. Why should this patient be so thirsty? Give him a lemonade, for Christ's sake. Give him the lemonade of his memory and his dreams. 
We are drying the lungs, the doctor had said last week. We don't want him to aspirate. Isn't this a quality of life issue? I did not say. Doctors all around the country seemed confused about whether hydration or dehydration was better. I feared that dehydration meant they were sending him off the exit ramp. A dry death. A dry death is better, someone had once told me. But how does anyone know, I had protested. There's no death rattle. You don't hear the death rattle. So you mean it's better for us, I said, the living? Who knew what the dying felt at the end? They didn't return calls. That would be very kind of you to ask, my father said, delicately trying to moisten his lips with his gray tongue. He attempted to smile, but his whole dry mouth seemed unsplittable and in need of sponging. His bottom teeth were as dark as teak and twisted in his mouth. When the nurse comes back in, I'll tell her. Did I do something wrong? He asked. I feel like I did something wrong. No, not a thing. The nurse set up the iPad for you, but then had to leave. She'll be back later. Three times daily, visored, hazmatted suits dressed like beekeepers popped in and out of the rooms, their faces indiscernible, their voices the high, chipper kind that children and the elderly are supposed to prefer. Bird-like, perhaps. Good to have the song of a bird. Even if they were frightened birds, in a rush to get out of there. Even if they were terrified of their tasks. Are you in any pain? I asked. Oh, not really, he said defeatedly. An exhilarating exchange of ideas was not possible on screens or in this weird dystopia. Still, I decided to make the situation as interesting as possible. The British Prime Minister has the virus, I said. So does Prince Charles, also Tom Hanks. His face perked up as he searched for a reply. So I'm in good company. Yes, you are. And the poor are getting the virus too, of course. I'm the poor, he said, especially after last month's Berrywood bill. Later, I would accuse my quite comfortable friends of appropriating the illness from the disadvantaged, of co-opting a fear of the illness that targeted prisoners, frontline workers, meatpackers, and, of course, the elderly. It's all unfair. My father's sight came rushing into his eyes again and brightened up the screen. I just hope I don't have to arm wrestle the meek and the peacemakers for a seat in heaven. That would be awkward. I gave him a smile as if everything were all good, then started in with some more about the virus. I would try to make a bad situation diverting. He would be interested. It is all over the globe, I told him. No country was really prepared except perhaps Finland. The Finns are a nation of doomsday preppers, so they were completely ready. They've been stockpiling for years out of fear of Russia, so they're in pretty good shape. Also, South Korea did well. They are wary of North Korea, so are somewhat disaster-ready. Same as Taiwan, which fears the mainland. I could see him considering this. I guess we just weren't that afraid of Canada, he said, his eyes giving a wobbly little jump. Jokes, the very wattage of life. Performance had always been how he conversed, summoning it up from the depths, rehearsing the recitation, looking for the opening. There it still was, beneath the bullshit malaria drugs. I guess we weren't, even though Trudeau's wife came down with this. Is that so? Pierre Trudeau's wife? Justin Trudeau, yep. I could see his focus change and his chest rise with sad and effortful breathing. I am supposed to go to the shoe store, but if I get there before the pastor, I won't have the key. I knew the hydroxychloroquine gave people hallucinations. Still, all the doctors seemed to be using it. It had the endorsement of Washington, which had invented the undrained swamp, and of France, which had invented pasteurization and had been dining out on it ever since, while still serving small, moldy, raw milk cheeses. It will be okay. They are giving you medicine. The last time he'd been on it was in 1945, during the war when he actually had malaria. My mother had the Spanish flu. Yes, I know. She was pregnant with my older brother and they told her to lie there and not to cough or her lungs would burst. I wondered if lungs could really burst. 
I had heard this story from my dad on several occasions in my childhood and wondered about its veracity every time, though never out loud. Now to watch him sending these utterances into the light of the screen was like seeing an old man burn all his poetry in a fire. They were all interesting people, my family, my sister, my brothers, and my parents, he said, seemingly forgetting about his own three children. Livy, the eldest, me in the middle, and Delia, the baby, who had opted out of these scheduled conversations. No necrophilia Delia, she called herself. She adored our father, but could not participate. Oddly, it seemed that his daughters at present were not as interesting as his childhood family. Or perhaps that had always been true. His mind seemed a little rinsed of all of us, even of our mother, who had died 18 months before, so abruptly that her vividness for me had not been interrupted. There were still things I made mental notes to tell her. She would want to know how Dad was doing. Now, you were born on Staten Island, isn't that right? My father said. I was slightly startled. No, that was Mom. I knew I sometimes looked like her. His head leaned back against the pillow, and he pulled it up to look again into the iPad that the nurse had set there on a kind of tray. He had grown thinner, and silvery stubble covered his chin. He was trying to be courteous. He did not ask after me, for which I was grateful. Who wanted to share the banalities of this life right now? The low buzz of dread in the head like a broken wire? The endless YouTube links? Everyone frantically not socializing? The recently furloughed male friends doing their insane air guitar concerts on Zoom? The hours of television news interspaced with highly theatrical, mind-boggling insurance ads. The early morning senior mixer at the supermarket. The neighborhood walks with face masks hanging from one ear like dream catchers. Women created email threads of their readings of the Bible. It was all getting ghastly, especially the singing of happy birthday twice as you washed your hands, because it might never actually be your birthday again, so have at it. Well-to-do white families in large suburban homes tending to their bubbles, bubbles that intersected other bubbles so were not bubbles at all, disinfecting grocery bags and ordering from Amazon and Grubhub, and in general claiming the pandemic for themselves. The shuttered theaters and museums made the gloom of cities everywhere a harrowing one. Photos of empty boulevards and squares flooded the internet. Pierced ears filled back in because who wore earrings anymore? Your badly painted toenails you could say were done by a neighbor girl home from school on her deck. A neighbor girl who was actually you. French wine had been turned into hand sanitizer. Wisconsin milk had been turned into soap. But some things had stayed the same, like the arrival of spring and the pastel monotony of the flowering shrubs. Who could feel how large a transformation was really occurring when the earth seemed to be enjoying itself more than ever, and who could speak of such things to a man who was clutching his plastic necklace of oxygen? Are you comfortable, Dad? Just lie back away from the iPad if you want. Don't make yourself uncomfortable. We can still talk. The headboard behind him was a white pleather and attached to the wall. He had a bed sore and a catheter for a prolapsed bladder. I knew that. His rehabilitated hip would never be right now, though the surgery, we've been told, had been a great success. His gown was slightly open in front, revealing his pink and sunken chest. He threw his head back against the pillow again, then tipped it forward. I have to go downstairs and get the mail. And then, for a moment, he seemed to know where he was. Am I going back to my apartment? The Berrywood facility would not readmit him until he had tested negative. So far, four positives. Not yet. You have to test negative before they can let you go. I don't think I got the mail today. I need to get the mail. I have to do that before I meet the pastor. There were a lot of things he needed to do and places he needed to be. He was always announcing this. He was supposed to meet trains and people and small groups holding meetings. Perhaps, even in normal life, 
every place a person believed they needed to be was a kind of hallucination, and that was its power. Barry Wood had, some years ago, constructed a fake bus stop for escapees. It was a way of catching a runaway pet with the lure of food. The staff would find the residents sitting there, waiting, no bus ever stopping, and talk to them sympathetically until their plans evaporated into the mist, as so many plans did, even in good times. My father had never gotten that bad. Before all this, he had seemed fairly with it. Is that music playing? I asked. My laptop had good speakers. It sounded like massage music, a calming electric flute, the kind of music that played on what one of the nurses called the classical station. They had two hours worth of music on each station, she said. I was hoping for Brahms, he said. We'll see if we can get some Brahms. You know, Beethoven had one great symphony, the Eroica, and then there's Mozart's C minor, but then Brahms comes in third. He had four symphonies of equal quality. That's so interesting, I said. Whenever we spoke of music, he ignored my preference for Tchaikovsky or Duke Ellington. He would sometimes allow for Harold Arlen. Only four symphonies, but they were all top-notch. I didn't know what to say. Well, I'm going to call the nurse's station and see if we could get some Brahms for you. Any of the symphonies, he added. An aide suddenly appeared on the screen in her beekeeper's garb. We are here for the oxygen levels and to change his dressing, she said. Okay, well, Dad, I'll leave you to these proceedings. But I'll hope to reach you later tonight. Livy's going to call at some point today. Love you. Okay, honey, good to talk to you, he said, sounding suddenly as he always had. He would never have said, love you, back. He had fought in the Philippines. The greatest generation did not do fay, fake, love you too. The greatest generation did not wear lip balm brought by the aid or don compression stockings too feminine. And hearing aids were a lot like jewelry and thus a problem and were sometimes found lost among the tangled sheets. The greatest generation had taken a lot of orders early in life and did not want to take any more. The aide peeked into the screen and waved with her gloved hand. Bye-bye, she said. Thank you. Is it possible to play some Brahms, I asked quickly. This isn't Brahms? No. Brahms? How do you spell it? She seemed to be typing it into the iPad. I told her, hoping I'd put the H in the right spot. I'll see what I can do. Also, do you have lemonade, I asked. Here's this, she said, bringing a plastic cup to my father's lips. He sipped and then grimaced and waved it away. It looked to be a chartreuse-colored, watery drink made from powder. Bye-bye, the beekeeper said again as she grew larger in the screen and then turned the iPad off entirely so that on my laptop, my connection became just a lit square with my own face in it. My father was too old to grasp technology, so the nurses were the ones to place his FaceTime calls according to the schedule that Livy had given them. But the nurses were frazzled, and Livy could be a pain in the neck, though she didn't know it. Her husband always called her an angel, massaging her shoulders, hoping to get laid. And Delia, of course, had refused to be a part of it. I can't watch Dad like this, she'd said again that day. The following afternoon, a FaceTime call came in from Livy. I thought I'd patch you in and share my time with you, she said. What do you mean? I'm scheduled for a different time. But Livy was bossy and retired, a bad combo. She'd retired too young. Watch this, she said, and spun her phone so that through my screen, I saw her screen, and in her screen, I saw my father. Hi, Dad, I said. Hey, hiya. My dad croaked uncertainly. Then the screen switched so that I was looking into the back of Livy's fireplace. Why am I looking into your fireplace? I asked. It's so he can see you. The way it's patched in, you can't both see each other at the same time. When he sees you, you don't see him. I see the fireplace. This is too strange. She toggled back and forth between the black hearth and my bewildered father. I didn't want to be patched in in this manner. Well, I thought we could sing to him, she said. I knew that one afternoon she had used the iPad as a nanny cam, watching him while she folded her laundry. She had verbalized her children, a method that was also known as graduated extinction. 
letting them wail themselves to sleep as she watched, and I wondered if there wasn't something similar in what she was doing now. I suppose we could sing Danny Boy, I suggested. It's a beautiful song and it matches his name. Oh, I don't think Dad likes that song. He says they're not the original words. What do you mean? It's a beautiful song. Yes, but he objects to it somehow. He says the Irish took it from the English. The Irish stole Danny Boy? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Now I had questioned her authority. There was always a crisis of expertise with Livy. How about this, Livy said. She sang into the phone. If you'll be M-I-N-E mine, I'll be T-H-I-N-E thine, and I'll L-O-V love you all the T-I-M-E time. And you are the B-E-S-T best of all the R-E-S-T rest. What the heck are you singing? Dad used to sing me all his old army songs, she laughed. That's an army song? And we still won the war? I think I'm going to go and just wait for my own call with him. Now my father on the screen let out a howl of anguish, and I could see him grimace with agony and sorrow. He tore at his canula and his gown. Whoa, Libby said. What's going on here? I think he doesn't want you to go. That's not it. He hardly knows I'm here. My father's face became a gash of pain. Bitta, bitta, he cried hoarsely. With one hand, he fiercely sliced the signal for cut at his throat. Speaking German, still sharp, Livy said. I don't think speaking one's college German right now is a sign of being sharp. He was clearly hallucinating, agitated, imagining he was a prisoner of war. That was what it must have felt like to him. The cruel isolation, the medicine, the lights, the strange machines all around. Of course, during the war he had been in the Pacific Theater, but hallucinations were not fussy about details like that. He tugged at the tubes in his arms. Terror flew from him in a kind of guttural howl like a whole song. Nine, 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 bitta, nine. He thrashed around in the bed. I texted Levy. I can't watch this. It's unbearable. Did she no longer know what was bearable and what was unbearable? Well, no one knew anymore. I will speak to him tomorrow. I'm going to give him his privacy. I got into bed. I turned off the phone ringer and just watched television. Every now and then, the numbers of the telemarkers and scammers appeared in white on the screen. At night, my dreams often featured such alerts, scrolling like ticker tape across them, and I would spend much of the dream trying to figure out whose numbers they were. The next evening, evening was better, Livy said. I waited for hours for the call from the hospital to come. I sat before my computer, waiting for the FaceTime icon to enliven itself. Livy sent emails and text. Tell them to turn the lights down. They are too bright. I keep telling them to turn them down, but they don't. Ask for Eileen or Carmen. One of them is usually on duty. Ask them if they got the pizzas we ordered for them. Livy's patient advocacy, I feared, would get him killed. The overrun hospital would triage him, and the hospice staff would move in and put him down like a dog, thanks to his annoying daughters. The call came in late. The face that filled the screen was the beekeeper's. Was it Eileen? Was it Carmen? I did not know. She seemed new. Your very nice father is here, but he is asleep. She stepped away from the screen, and I saw him with his eyes closed, his head hanging off his neck in a tilted fashion, the oxygen canola taped in place, his mouth a dark crescent. They had shaved him, so his face was now cleared of the patches of miniature birch forest that had sprung up there. His skin had a butterscotch tinge, and his neck was ropey against the blue cotton of his gown. The nurse stroked his forehead with a latex-covered finger, gingerly but several times. He's asleep, but he's hanging in there. He's a sweet man. 
Thank you for calling me. I'll try to connect with him tomorrow. Yes, she said. I'll send you some pictures of him sleeping, she added, and began tapping the iPad. Then she looked up. Good night, she said brightly, performing the role of saintly nurse, her head filling the screen as she moved in to shut it off. Surely her loving kindness would vanish as soon as the iPad went dark, and her demeanor would reveal an eagerness to be rid of this covidic old guy with his bed sore and immobile hip, his catheter and oxygen tubing. I called Delia of the Camellias, lying on her chaste lounge. He's stranded there like someone fallen on a battlefield, I said. Everyone is just stepping around him. He's in the way. How could I speak the lonely, frantic improvisation of my inadequate self-reliance? She was well-versed in her own. I told you I did my crying last week. We had a good long talk before his surgery. It contained dignity and charity for all. You'll have to call me when it's over. Her voice broke a little. Maybe he'll get out. Maybe he'll finally test negative and be released to rehab to get his hip working again. I could not imagine it. Not really. Even that would be hellish. Then I added, sounding still more insane, falconers return their old birds to the wild. That would be interesting if Dad could test negative two times in a row, she said. Perhaps he will take a long time to die like a courteous Rasputin. That would be Dad's way. Don't get me wrong. Dad's a nice person, just maybe a little on the spectrum. Not the Rasputin spectrum. Is that a spectrum? I'm sure the hospital's hospice nurses think so. Is that who's tending to him now? I suspect so. I'm not really sure. While you and I are a thousand miles away, all this is up to Livy. She's always the boss anyway. She doesn't complain. No, she instructs, which creates rage. She's already antagonizing the nurses. I fear she's going to get him killed. Delia, the baby, was beloved, much more than Livy or me. I was probably too mysterious to my father, no husband, no child, for him to love me in more than an average way a feeling he had in common with all the men I'd ever known. Still, like them, he seemed to enjoy talking to me. What do you think of Biden? he often asked. He was hoping to live until November to cast his vote for the Democrats. And this was what he enjoyed talking about the most, as well as Brahms. Dad arranged to donate his body to the medical school, I said now, changing the subject only slightly but they can't possibly take it at this point. He would be like typhoid Murray. Now you've made me laugh, Delia said, not laughing. The next day, at Livy's instructions, I waited the entire afternoon. When not watching for the FaceTime icon to jump off the dashboard on my computer screen, I stared out the window at the haphazard latticework of trees against the sky intersected with transformers and wires that had squirrels running along them like cursors. A satiny blue-black cowbird sat atop a phone pole, a cut-rate omen. The call was supposed to come in at 3 in the afternoon, but by 9 p.m., nothing had come through except Livy's text. Don't forget about the lights. Please ask about the music again. They keep playing the sounds of the season loop. Remind them that the pizza came from us. I called the nurse's station. This is Dan Fordham's daughter. He's a patient on your wing. And I was supposed to get the call this afternoon, but I've been waiting for hours and nothing has come through. I just want to make sure you have the right number. Dan Fordham, yes. Let me get back to you, the nurse said. I hope you got our pizza, I mumbled pathetically. She had already put me on hold. And then we were disconnected, and a dial tone buzzed in my ear, like a message from the universe. I called back and got the voicemail, and so left my number and my email. I waited several more hours. Even Livy and her husband went to bed, or going to bed, without waiting any longer for a report from me. And then it was midnight, and shortly thereafter the phone rang, and I knew the message it contained. 
the pipes, the pipes from Glen to Glen. I could not touch the phone. I would let the voicemail pick it up. My actual ear had not been readied. But then I grabbed the phone and said hello and received the news. I thanked the nurse. I added, he wanted to make it until November so he could vote. Perhaps that was too much to hope for. I am very sorry, came the voice. I went to bed. I wondered whether in the final moments a dying person said, so this is death. Or did they say, so that was life? Or did a nice man who had not planned to die so alone and isolated but in his own bed with family gathered around think anything at all? Perhaps at the end he was simply tired, in a condition of holy yet unenlightened bewilderment, all consciousness as fake as a skit. I missed him already and without comprehension. I spent the next morning sending emails to those who needed them. By the afternoon, the sky had the slurry look it could have before a storm. Outside, things were starting to move and fly with a heavy hand, a flat foot, and a hard rain. A derecho, four minutes of straight wind at hurricane strength. It tore up jungle gyms, knocked down power lines, uprooted trees. Even this set was being struck. A transformer blew in the alley, and I cried out in fright. The ensuing power outage darkened and enfeebled the town for almost a week. Traffic lights went dead in their various eyes. Neighbors in masks and nitro gloves hauled thawed frozen food to the curb in black trash bags. Every evening, no phone or Wi-Fi, no communication of any sort, my cell uncharged, I ate a few apples with some peanut butter and went to bed at seven when the sky lost all sun. With a flashlight, I read essays of zigzaggy piety and pomo chic until I fell asleep. Could a thought become an idea without instructions? Could an emptiness of thought eradicate ideas? With my father gone, his body chilling in a Thermo King truck far away, did the workers, stacking him up in plastic wrap, talk to him, saying, There you go, sir. There is nothing to worry about now. You are on your way, my man. I had lost all interest in myself and all conviction or belief in forms generally. In the morning, outside, chainsaws dissected old red oaks, freeing them from tangled wire. After six days, unannounced, the lights came slyly, silently back on, as if a large cloud had discreetly shifted. Motors kicked in. Clocks flashed their incorrect times. All the little mice of my mind returned, found their corners, and began to set up shop. That was David Means reading FaceTime by Laurie Moore. The story was published in The New Yorker in September of 2020 and was an O. Henry Prize winner in 2022. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, David, when you 
chose this story for the podcast and you first tried reading it at home. It made you cry and you were wondering why you had chosen this story. Um, but you said it was worth it for the cathartic and fearless humor. And several months have gone by since we had that exchange and reading it today. Did you still feel that way? I did. There's that one moment, I guess, when she gets the news that um, just feels so emotional in in so many different ways. Historically, it's like the millions of people that went through that and then all the people that go through that anyway without COVID that get that terminal moment when they're told verbally – that death has happened. And she says mm-hmm. that her ear wasn't ready for it. Um, but then she does actually answer the phone, even though she knows she's not ready for it. Yeah. And yeah. she allows herself to hear it verbally, which is super different than just getting the word. It's mm-hmm. like when you hear somebody tell you that it's happened, it's a, it's a different process. Yeah. The, and the counterpoint is that humor so let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about what uh, Laurie Moore calls the very wattage of life jokes. Um, first of all, how does she use comedy in the story? Un- unlike some of her stories, I think it's toned down a little bit here. Um, actually, it seems like it's referenced more. Like there's a, a sense of the awareness of it. Um, just that comment, the jokes are, are the wattage of life. You know, she's referencing the humor itself in mm-hmm. the story. When she makes a joke, the, her sister does not laugh. Yeah. So humor is not working in this story for this character the way it would in other stories. Yeah. But then there are actually lines that are funny. There are, there are <laughs> lines that are funny. So you're just. <laughs> it makes for a slightly ambivalent reading experience, right? Because you don't want to find this situation. In any way entertaining. No, and, and the funny thing is old people are really funny sometimes. And, and I'm going through this myself in my, my life. You're, you're, I'm laughing and crying at the same time. Yeah. So if somebody can't hear something and then it's like, what? And then it becomes this like routine. <laughs> Almost like a... Who's you know, on first. <laughs> exactly. And I think there's some of that in this story. The weirdness of looking at your father on FaceTime, you know... That that weird moment when memory fails or when he thinks he's in Germany or he's speaking yeah. German. Like, yeah. Even though he was he fought in the Philippines. Exactly. <laughs> Not in Germany. Um, yeah, it's interesting from for this narrator to be witnessing these things and coming up with her own explanations for them. You know, well, he must be thinking he's a prisoner of war in Germany because of these bright lights and these machines, you know, that kind of scrambling to make sense of what's happening when what's happening may just not make sense, you know, and it's not really said that the narrator is a writer and and perhaps she isn't, though she spends her time in the dark reading, you know, Pomo chic literary essays. (laughs) Um, So perhaps she's a teacher of, of writing, but you sense her grasping to make a narrative out of what's happening in some way. Yeah, it's a super intimate story. You know, I thought a little bit about Grace Paley, conversations with my father, I think it was called. It, it just has this intimacy about it, which, which makes you feel like you're reading confessional autofiction or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there, there's that going on when you hear it, too. Yeah, and per- perhaps that's also impacted by the fact that a lot of this is, in a way, straight reporting of that period of time. You know, we get, I mean, I found it really strange reading it now because there are the details I've forgotten. You know, the people who took to YouTube or, you know, <laughs> the the singing happy birthday while you wash your hands. Um, in a way, it's like a kind of reported microcosm of such a brief period of time. Yeah, all the crazy things that were done um, and she says something about um, what is bearable and what is not bearable and that no one really knows anymore and I think that's part of what I felt rereading it was being reminded of 
how um, things that we thought were unbearable became bearable very quickly too. We, and, and that ties in with the FaceTime and the technology and mm-hmm. the weirdness of seeing somebody on screen who can't come to you. Those were weird times. <laughs> they were pretty awful times. Um, so the story is set, I think, in April of 2020. And um, Lori must have written it that summer. And she sent it to me in August. came out in September. And I feel as though by that point, we were already in a different era. Um, hydroxychloroquine had been debunked. Exactly. <laughs> um, we weren't in that initial shock period where no one knew what to do. And, you know, people were just going to die because we didn't know how to treat it. But we were still, and at the time I thought, okay, well, you know, we're six months later. We're, we're through the worst of this. We have a grasp on it. But, of course, now you look back at September of 2020 and you think we didn't even know when there would be a vaccine. We didn't know we'd be vaccinated four or five times. <laughs> we didn't know, you know, most of what we now know in coping with COVID. So it almost was historical fiction at the time. And now it feels like historical fiction in that it brings back a different world. Yeah. It brings it back. But at the same time, like all good fiction at a sort of fundamental level, it's a story about losing your parent. It's just that the structure around it, the mechanics of it with the FaceTime and everything is creating a sort of symbolic thing around it. I think that's why I think it'll be read years from now, not just as a sto- as a historical story, but as yet another of countless stories that are just about specific glimpse of a moment Mm -hmm. of loss. I think the way that it shifts to the blackout and the wires are down and she's in complete silence at the end is somehow a sort of spiritual aspect of the story. She has time without the technology. She has time to look out at the birds and the trees and read Pomo (laughs) stuff the narrator has a chance to sort of reconcile with what's happened. And what's interesting is that, that the technology failing, the, the lines coming down at the end, is, is what forces her to sort of have that silence. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything is cut off at the end of the story. No more iPads, no more FaceTiming. Um, and, and so I think that plays a huge part in how, how I read it, at least, you know, later when I read it last week to see how it felt. Yeah. It was interesting when rereading it. I I thought, well, if this were just a straight memoir, a recounting of, of this loss, it would end with the death. Yeah. Um, but this story has another, th- another section that does something narratively. It's not even a coda. It's actually where one of the main events of the story happens, you know, which is this grappling. Yeah. Yeah. It could not have ended with just the announcement of the death and been a decent story. Maybe if it were just complete confessional, somehow it would just say, and then he died and that's it. And I missed him. Yes. Yes. And I missed him. But thank God it doesn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you, how do you read that storm? You know, it's a sort of classic literary trope to kind of call in the weather to um, personify the emotion that's happening internally. So do you think that that windstorm is meant to be symbolic? I think that weather is always symbolic. If, If looked at from an emotional standpoint, I think there's a sort of, Maybe it's not even a misconception that the author, like, oh, I think I'll put some weather in here. <laughs> but, Is that uh, what you do? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, we really don't know what the weather is until that, you know, up in, so we're locked in technological space yeah. most of the story. We have a little bit of spring, but she doesn't want to talk about it. A little bit of spring. But she does mention that the seasons, I think earlier she mentioned. The seasons keep going. Nature yeah. keeps going. Yeah. And I remember feeling that during the lockdown that, okay, I can still 
go and walk around like a zombie, keeping yeah. across the street, not yeah. getting close to anybody. But that nature is still going to keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this storm swoops in and it wipes out, as you said, it wipes out all possibilities for electronic communication, which has been everything that this narrator has done. Everyone she's spoken to has been on a phone or on an iPad. And she goes kind of into a hibernation, right? Like there doesn't seem to be, it's not that she's sitting there grappling with the loss directly, but this shutdown allows a sort of reset, maybe. Yeah. What's interesting is there's no more conversations with siblings. We're kind of left to fill in all the stuff around that final scene. We're alone with it, too. We're in bed, too, reading magazines. <laughs> and, and that's something that Laurie does magically in all of her work. And I, this sounds like a cliche to even say it. It's, not, it's what's left out. It's the structure around it. There's a lot that's not there. And, and the reader has to bring it in. And, and this is what I think is... Um, this is a personal idea, but it's an issue I have with saying that this is a confessional story, that it's autofiction, that it's her, her. Even though mm -hmm. I felt that when I read it, it's sort of the war against the imagination. Every time somebody has to link a story with something that really happened, they're diminishing this idea that the imagination can go beyond. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's probably in some way based on her real life at some level. But at the same time, I just refuse to let that be part of how I read it. Mm -hmm. You're looking for what's been what's been crystallized beyond the reality. Yeah. I mean, also, when you read the story, it's so strictly limited to this time. You know, we hear a little bit about the father's past, even mostly in how it manifests in his character because he's of the greatest generation and he doesn't say I love you and he you know, fought in the Philippines, and he's this and that, and he, he likes Brahms. But we never get any kind of scenes from childhood, any sense of, you know, the details of his relationships with his daughters. You know, we know how they each respond differently to his illness, but we don't know how they might have, you know, been when younger. And so it's it's so restricted and held within this framing of this time period and that's interesting for a piece of fiction. Yeah. We don't really know, like you said earlier, we don't really know what the narrator does. Yeah. We do know that the structure of response, Delia refuses to FaceTime. And, um, you know, so that, that seems really important to me that we have three different approaches um, to how to respond. One person's buying pizza for the nurses and micromanaging every little detail. Mm -hmm. um, the other's narrating the story, and then we have a third sister who's not even really involved. Yeah. Keeping away. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that as a sort of symbolically or whatever, that's the way it really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, interestingly, in, her, in, in the Q&A that Laurie did with me, at the time, she said, you know, the story is to some extent autobiographical, but she was thinking of herself as writing a weird version of King Lear. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, you know, and down to the youngest daughter being Delia, not Cordelia. And she said, yet there's no actual kingdom except the Thermo King, you know, which is the awful... The Thermo King, yes. <laughs> awful image of death at the end. Um I don't. I don't know who's the fool. Maybe the the beekeeper nurse. <laughs> exactly. Maybe FaceTime is is the fool. Maybe the technology is the fool. Yeah. It's it's, it's the, um, you know, the thing that's transferring information from one person to another. What I what I find fascinating is the there's other things that that happen in this story. Little and there are those little poetic moments like jokes are the wattage of life um, that I feel like can only happen in a Laurie Moore story. She said that. Per, like that life is kind of a hallucination. I, I, mm -hmm. I forget the actual words, but... Right. The, the idea that you always have to be somewhere. Maybe our real meetings yes, that yeah. we're late for are hallucinations too, <laughs> you know? Yeah, these little moments, these little like sharp observational poetic moments that are distinctly her 
own voice. Mm-hmm. They're coming into this story, not as much as they do in some other stories of hers where it's more lighter and banter. And, and, and the, this is a pretty heavy story. Yeah. But then you get that last line about, um, you know, those little mice of the mind who are coming back to set up shop in the corners of her, of her mind. What do you think is happening in that moment that these six days without power have created a sort of rebirth or or are those mice bad mice <laughs> coming back <laughs> the mice of the mind um i don't want to get a, sort of some mystical or something but i feel like it's the story and the narrator trying to conclude <laughs> not not find an ending for the story but find a place to rest at the very end of the story so mm-hmm. i forget the actual line but it's like i'm going to let my mind go back and start being dynamic again. Let the little mice start moving again. You can't end a story any other way except to find that place where it settles itself into a point that you can release it. So then we're left just with the image of her at the house. The lights are back on. The lights are back on. And that's all we get. Slyly and silently they're coming back on. Yeah. Yeah. And she's going to function again. She's gone through the storm. Yeah. I I get the sense that she's going to grieve quite a bit. Yeah. Now that the lights are back on and and her sisters will be FaceTiming with her and um, or maybe coming by to visit, she'll be back in the motion of normal everyday grief. Maybe those are the mice too, the memories and stuff that come up. Like for me, my father died, and now I have these conversations with him when I'm like at very specific moments when I'm looking for – I have books in big boxes down in in my basement, and I'll be looking for a book. And whenever I'm looking for a book that I store down there, that's when I'm like – I start talking to my father. And I I feel like that's – she settles the story at this point, but there – that's going to be coming up down the, down the line for her. Right. Her conversations will now be hallucinations. Exactly. <laughs> um, of a kind that are psychologically and emotionally induced rather than illness-induced. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. technologically induced, too. Um, I'm, I'm wondering why you have those moments when you're looking for a book. Um. Well, because my father read a lot and he gave me a lot of books. Mm-hmm. He so would, he's in those boxes. In he's in way. those boxes. He would mark his books up. He was one of those markers of mm-hmm. books. like, and, and so the books that he would give me were almost unreadable because they were so marked <laughs> up. But it's like a little trigger or a touchstone that hits me, um, you know, in a particular moments. Maybe that's another reason why I picked the story, because I, I went through this before COVID, but the topic was still close. Um, and now I'm going through it with uh, other family members who are, you know, struggling. So now I get to go face to face. I don't have to use FaceTime and sit and be with people who are going through a- the aging process. Um, this is a different story, though. I think I think this is a story of COVID and what it did to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that even within the story, we have the narrator sort of saying, I'm not the worst hit. You know, this is a terrible situation. She's seeing her father die on, on FaceTime. He's had a successful hip operation, and by all rights, he should have been in rehab and back in his home. Um, but she's saying, you know, Later, I'm going to take us all to task for claiming to suffer from a disease that made us just have to clean our houses or stay home in our suburban bubbles when other people were doing the dying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, actually, there's a, there's a lot of little political, um, sociopolitical commentary going on in that section of the story. Yeah, yeah. People in their bubbles and then people who are um, – what did they call them um, – Frontline. Frontline. Essential workers. Essential workers. Essential workers. Yeah. 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 A very different experience for the two groups. And we also had the nurses. There's an interesting dynamic with how we feel about nurses in hospitals and how um, we know that they're, especially in the sort of urgent 
crisis situation that they're they're going to have to move on to the next patient. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this fear that they're really not being nice or they're not taking care. I mean, that came through in the story very realistically. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I was siding with the nurse in that scene because I thought the nurse was being really lovely and sort of stroking his forehead with her latex finger. And, <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and accentuating what a sweet man he was. Yeah. And I didn't get the sense that she was going to hang up the phone and then, you know, turn <laughs> and spit on him. It wasn't, um, you know, but I, I guess that just underscores the powerlessness you feel. I think she felt helpless, you know, maybe not a sense that that kind of thing was going to happen, but just that weird helplessness that you can have closing the door or turning off the iPad and leaving yeah. somebody in a hospital situation with anyone. Yeah. 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 And then she manages, even though he was in the military and and fought in the Philippines, he wants to stay alive to vote for Biden. Exactly. Um, She made sure we knew where his heart was. (laughs) (laughs) Elderly people have a lot of reasons to stay alive, and politics is definitely one of them for Mm -hmm. some some people. I mean, it's also part of the, the sort of gallows humor here. You just get the sense that either Laurie Moore or this narrator is not going to let a moment like that go unobserved <laughs> or <laughs> unnoted, you know, <laughs> that there, you are going to find the things that are sort of funny or, you know, sort of like slightly offbeat in, in a situation like this. Yeah, little, little things like that. And just, the, again, the weird humor of the, the elderly person like suddenly thinking you're you're the white. Just the right. miscommunication, yeah. the misconceptions. It, it's not malicious laughing at that. It's just the absurd humor. The absurdity of the situation, yeah. Total And absurdity. of what happens to the brain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess at the end of this story, we're a little bit better off than at the end of King Lear. Much um, better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these three sisters are probably going to come together. They are probably going to be reunited. Um, and we know from this vantage point that COVID will become less lethal, at least. Yeah, it's easier to read now that we know what we know. Yeah, I mean, I think it took a certain amount of courage to write it then, because as I remember at the time, everyone was either writing futuristic fiction or historical <laughs> fiction. Like, no one was willing to set stories in the present moment because you didn't know how it was going to end. And it might look really weird if you kind of anticipated something that was completely different from what actually happened. So for Laurie to just jump in and capture that moment without fear of later changes making it look wrong or, or anything like that, I think was quite brave. Yeah, huge. I mean, I remember the feeling of just reading it, just being like, what? She solved the problem or whatever it is of doing that by, again, the intimate tone, Mm -hmm. the intimacy of the story. And maybe also she had to distance herself a little bit from the reality of what she was writing about. Mm -hmm. In other words, she had to see it through a lens of a little bit in the future, looking back how do I write about this thing called uh, FaceTime and mm-hmm. the way it feels when it fizzles out and goes off and all I see is my own face. Yeah. And the only way to do that is to distance yourself from it a, a little bit so that you're looking at it as if you've never seen it before. The, the same thing with the seeing the back of the hearth, like the weird stuff that we did. I mean... I won't get into it, but my family had these, you know, family gatherings on, I don't even think it was Zoom. It was some other technology. And it was just ridiculous. And everyone was staring at the fireplace instead of at each other. Fireplaces, (laughs) candles, cursing, you know, people not having their mics off, saying things to each other that they probably shouldn't have said. Yeah, it was just this utter chaotic thing. Yeah. But to write about that, you have to be a little distant from it. In your imagination. Yeah. So maybe those those six days of darkness and screenlessness at the end of the story were also a way into writing the story. Yeah. 
if it really happened. <laughs> <laughs> or no, an imagined way in. <laughs> Perhaps that was there from the beginning, you know, in, in Laurie's mind. Nothing like a good power outage to <laughs> clear the head. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Deborah. Laurie Moore has published 10 books of fiction, including the story collections Birds of America and Bark and the novels A Gate at the Stairs and I'm Homeless If This Is Not My Home, which came out earlier this year. A winner of the Ray Award for the short story, Moore has been publishing fiction and nonfiction in The New Yorker since 1989. David Means is the author of the novel Histopia and six story collections, including The Secret Goldfish, which was shortlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, Instructions for a Funeral, and Two Nurses Smoking, which came out in 2022. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 2004. You can download more than 190 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.